All right, good morning, everyone. I'm glad to be with you this morning. Um, right now, uh, where I work out at the Twin Lake, out at Twin Lakes Bible Camp, we've got uh, we got family camps going on. We're wrapping up our kids programming for the summer. It's been a really busy summer, um, so it, this is like my second time here, and I'm excited to be with you. Uh, but I also just want to share some of the cool stuff that's been going on there. Uh, we take one week to hang out with uh, kids of different age groups, so we'll have second and third graders, fourth and sixth graders, seventh and eighth graders, and high schoolers all for different weeks, and we say, hey, how can we have an undistracted week of presenting the gospel as clearly as we can and you know, give them a chance to respond to it, give them a chance to consider it, think about it, grow, and we ask all the kids at the end of every week, like, hey, um, what happened? between you and Jesus. And they've got the chance to say, like, yeah, I, I knew Jesus before. You know, I made him my Lord and Savior maybe long ago, but, you know, I learned something new, and they have a place to talk about that. Uh, maybe it's a little bit more humbling, and they're like, yep, Jesus is my Lord, but didn't learn anything new at camp. They've got the option to tell us that. Um, they've got the option to tell us that it's still not something they're ready for, um, but also we give them the space to say, hey, if this is the first time that you ever accepted Jesus or made him your Lord and Savior. We, we want to know that. And so we got to the end of our youth camps, and we were able to look at that. And just from a number sense, it's been incredible to hear the stories, but from a number sense, we had a, a nearly around 70 kids um, tell us they gave their life to the Lord this summer. So that was, um, that was a really cool <laughs> highlight. That's just to give you a little update of what's going on at the camp. That, that doesn't have too much of uh, what's going on with the message this morning. So for the message, we've been in Jeremiah. This is the second week we're in this series. The first week, Russ went through chapter one. You've got to look at um, Jeremiah's call. He was this young prophet. He's hanging out over the last few kings of Judah. Israel, the northern kingdom, uh, has already been conquered. Uh, they're gone. That's been around for a while by the time Jeremiah's on the scene. So this is really cool that we already went through the Kings series. You already got some historical context for where we're sitting. We're, we're in the last four or five Kings of the kingdom of Judah. And so Jeremiah's been called to call him out on what's going on, the, proclaim God's judgment on Judah. And so we've got after Jeremiah's call in chapter 1, you've got chapters 2 through 29. That's what's going to happen in that is 14 different messages of judgment. That's 28 chapters of judgment, and we're right in the middle of that with our reading plan. So I, I don't know how, you know, how many of you like made it through the weekly reading? You don't have to raise your hand. But um, if you made it through the weekly reading last week and this week, we're like halfway through that. And so not... A lot of fun stuff in there, uh, not always super encouraging either. And so there's been some questions on my mind as reading um, when going through chapters 8 through 14 this last week. I've been curious, um, what is God saying through this? Th this is somewhere, I didn't do the exact math, but somewhere around like 24, 2500 years later after Jeremiah, we're sitting here right now. I, does this apply to me? You know, what do I get out of God's words of judgment to Judah? Also, in this context, um, yeah, how does this apply? So those have been some really tough questions that I want to work with you guys uh, this morning. 
Uh, let's pray before we get into that. Then we're going to jump into chapter 7, actually. I'll explain why after we pray. But um, I think we need prayer going into this. This is not an easy subject. This is probably the hardest thing I've ever had to prepare a message on. So um, let's get into it. Lord, this is your word. Um, I ask for you to make it clear. Uh, I ask for the grace to, um, for you to work and impress it on our minds and our hearts for us to be able to, to make a connection between what you were saying to Judah then and how these words connect with us today. Lord, we need you to show up in this place for any of that to happen, um, for any of this to, uh, to mean something to us this morning. So thank you for your word. Work in this place as we read through it. And bless this time, Lord. Amen. So, like I said, there are 14 separate messages of judgment in the first half of the book of Jeremiah. Last week, uh, no, the first week that you went through the reading plan, you would have read messages 1 and 2. And they usually start something like this. They usually say, uh, the, the word that came to Jeremiah from the Lord, uh, sometimes it's got a time stamp with it. We read the first two messages of judgment in the first week of reading. This last week, chapters 8 through 14, we actually jumped in the middle of one of the longest messages. All right? Chapter 7, 8, 9, and 10 is just one continuous message of judgment. And I wanted to start at the beginning of that. It's one of the most exciting. It's one of the most vivid. It's one of the easiest to connect and get the idea of, like, what are the types of things that Jeremiah is calling out the people of Judah on? So if you want to go to Jeremiah chapter 7, that's where we'll start. That's what we're going to work through this morning. And that's what I think there's some, some really neat things um, that are maybe just as applicable today or uh, we see as vividly today as Jeremiah was seen then. So, if you got Jeremiah chapter 7 pulled up, again, this is the first chapter of a four-chapter message, so my encouragement is to go read these again later and get the whole picture, but the first chapter of this message. Verse 1, the word that came to Jeremiah from the Lord, stand in the gate of the Lord's house and proclaim there this word. And say, hear the word of the Lord, all you men of Judah who enter these gates to worship the Lord. Thus says the Lord of hosts, the God of Israel, amend your ways and your deeds, and I will let you dwell in this place. Do not trust in these deceptive words. Hear the words. This is the temple of the Lord, the temple of the Lord, the temple of the Lord. So we get a little bit of an idea of where Jeremiah is for this. He's standing at the gate of the temple when it talks about you know, the hear the word of the Lord. Um, stand in the gate of the Lord's house, he's hanging out at the temple. People are coming, they're bringing their sacrifices, and this is our place. This is our frame of reference for the next four chapters. This is where he's going to be speaking. Everything that we see Jeremiah say, it's very helpful to be thinking of him at the temple and how these words must sound when they go to the temple. Just for a little uh, frame of reference here, when I say worship, what do we think of today? Where, where do, what place do we think of? What activity do we think of? Uh, for our campers at, at the camp, it's, it's typically singing. It's typically what we just did right before this. And in this context, this place, that's usually what we think of when we think of worship. When you say what's worship 24, 2,500 years ago and be before that, they're thinking something pretty similar. They're thinking I'm going to the temple 
and I'm offering sacrifice. This is, my, this, is, this is what worship is, okay? This is what this looks like here. And so they've got this idea um, that when I worship, that, that my worship is something that I, that I do in a specific place. It's a specific action in a specific place, and that makes me right with God. For us, at our time, too many people will find some sort of security in the fact that they go to church. They find security in church attendance. And look at what these people found security in. Verse, uh, verse 4, don't trust in these deceptive words. This is the temple of the Lord, the temple of the Lord, the temple of the Lord. We're going to get a lot more detail on what Jeremiah is talking about here. He's starting very general in saying that um, these words, you finding security in the fact that you're bringing sacrifices to the temple, you're kidding yourselves. We're going to get into more detail about why that's, uh, why that's not helping them, why that's just kind of a joke for them right now. All right, let's keep reading, verses 5 through 7. For if you truly amend your ways and your deeds, if you truly exercise justice with one another, if you don't oppress a sojourner and the fatherless or the widow or shed innocent blood in this place, and if you do not go after other gods to your own harm, then I will let you dwell in this place, in the land that I gave you of old to your fathers forever. He's getting specific about what is important. All right, he's already made a distinction that you finding comfort or security between you and God and just simply coming to the temple, he's getting more specific. He's talking about why that's just deception, finding security in that. What is he talking about? He says, um, you've got to amend your deeds. You need to be exercising justice with one another, not oppressing the sojourner, the fatherless, or the widow, shedding innocent blood, and not going to other gods to your own harm. What does all of the law hang on? Jesus pointed out two things. He said that the law could be summarized in this. Love your neighbor as yourself and love the Lord your God with all your heart, soul, mind. Everything hinges on that. Did you notice what types of things he points out here? It's very easy to point out. He pointed out examples of how we are treating our neighbor and what does our relationship with God look like. Don't go to other gods to your own harm. <clears throat> Loving God and loving others, it's, it's both the hinge and the climax and the summary of all of this law that we've been given by God. Um, there was a few notes in here. I just want to uh, point these out as kind of like teasers of more to come in this message. He said, um, don't shed innocent blood in this place and don't go after other gods to your own harm. We're going to see this come back up, so there's more on this to come. And so... Um, if we don't have, if we can't have security um, in just following the law in the temple uh, while breaking the law outside the temple, then um, what do we do? What's going on here? Let's keep reading in verse chapter 8. Uh, Behold, you trust in deceptive words. Again, those deceptive words are the temple of the Lord, the temple of the Lord, the temple of the Lord. We're safe because we're in the temple. We've got the temple. Check it out, verse 9. Will you steal, murder, commit adultery, swear falsely, make offerings to Baal, and go after other gods that you have not known, and then come back and stand before me in this house, which is called by my name, and say, we're delivered, only to go on doing all of these abominations? 
has this house which is called by my name become a den of robbers in your eyes? I myself have seen it, declares the Lord. So notice again that he is drawing attention to sins that both deal with how we treat our neighbors and how we treat him, how we treat God. Um, they, they go out and they are, well, he read it, he listed it off. Um, they're making offerings to Baal, they're swearing, swearing falsely, they're committing adultery, and then they come back to the temple and they say, hey, we're safe here, we're delivered. It doesn't matter how I live out here as long as I can come back into the temple and worship in this place, and we're good. And he says, this is, this is crazy. Um, but how different is that from what we see in our culture today? I don't feel like this is a message that is really tied to this time and place. I, I've gotten to see this my whole life. There's this culture of Christianity in the United States where our worship can be so different from what happens here as long as we come back to here, as long as we are worshiping in the way that we're expected it to look um, within the church, then we're good everywhere else. We find security in coming to this place and worshiping in a specific way. It's like out there, we can commit all the sin we want to because, oh, at least we have the temple, all right? Or at least I have my church attendance. We're finding refuge from our sin at least a license or security for our sin by coming back to here. And this is what God calls that. He says, you have made my house a den of robbers. Is that a familiar phrase for anyone? Where else have we seen that? Jesus is going to come by much, much later after this to the same place and accuse these people of the same thing. It's like, you think that you, it doesn't matter how you live outside of here as long as you can come back to here and make sacrifices to God. Oh, man. Um, it just amazes me how much, uh, how much things haven't changed. And so how we speak about something, it, it really does reflect our hard attitude about it. All right? For them, at least I've got the temple. I can go on sinning, but I've got the temple. Or I've got my sacrifices. Or I've got Jesus. If Jesus has become to us a license, then it's a really good time to take an inward look and say, do I have any relationship, all right? Do I have any, um, is my heart in this? Or is, has Jesus become a place of security so I can go on doing what I want everywhere else? Just a, an easy application here. But let's keep reading here. Uh, we're in verse 12. Go now to my place that was in Shiloh, where I made my name dwell at first, and see what I did to it because of the evil of my people Israel. And now because you have done all these things, declares the Lord, and when I spoke to you persistently, you did not listen. And when I called you, you did not answer. Therefore, I will do to the house that is called by my name and in which you trust... And to the place that I gave to you and your fathers, as I did to Shiloh. And I will cast you out of my sight as I cast out all your kinsmen and all your offspring of Ephraim. Now, what's he talking about here with Shiloh? Uh, this is another good reason that I think is awesome that we went through the King series not too long ago. At the beginning of that series, uh, chapter 4 of 1 Samuel, 
We get the picture of where Israel is at, um, where they had the Ark of the Covenant. They hadn't built the temple yet, but the Ark of the Covenant was in a place called Shiloh. It was in Ephraim. There was a town in Ephraim named Shiloh, and there was the prophet Eli who was uh, looking over and directing and guiding Samuel, who those books were going to be named after, and he's going to be writing about and ministering to the very first kings of Israel. So this is where we're at quite a while before this. The ark is presiding in Shiloh, and Eli's sons, the prophet's sons, they're going into battle against the Philistines, and they think, hey, why don't, why don't we take the ark, why don't we bring the ark and kind of use it as a, more or less a good luck charm in battle? And lots of sin had been happening within Israel and preceding this, but they take the ark, they take it into battle, and they're decimated. The Israelites are. The Philistines, they walk away with it. And God at this point, much later, he's drawing the Israelites' attention to that, and he's saying, remember that. If you think I'm not going to bring judgment simply because of where I live, you need to remember Shiloh. You need to remember what happened there. Sure, I lived in Shiloh. The Ark of the Covenant was in Shiloh, but what happened when there wasn't obedience? What happened when there was no relationship? What happened when we depended on a thing and on a place for our security? They thought, I'm just going to bring the ark into battle and it'll be all good. But there was nothing else going on. There was no obedience. There was no relationship with God. There was no faithfulness. We just are going to use this to our advantage. And God says, you've done that again. And what happened in Shiloh is going to happen here. Uh, another small little note Verse 15, when it says, I will cast you out of my sight, I will cast out all your kinsmen and all the offspring of Ephraim. Uh, why it's talking about that, again, Shiloh was a town in Ephraim, but also the northern kingdom of Israel, which by this point has already been conquered by the Assyrians. Um, that was started, if you'll remember, by Jeroboam. After Solomon's son, Rehoboam, starts leading the southern kingdom of Judah, Jeroboam, he takes 10 tribes, and they break off, and they make their own kingdom. Jeroboam was an Ephraimite. So if you're wondering why it says, I cast you out of my sight, I cast out all your kinsmen, all the offspring of Ephraim, it's just drawing an allusion to that northern kingdom that's already been destroyed and using it as a warning. Look at what happened to these people. Don't expect that it won't happen to you. Kind of scary stuff. Um, we're about to read in verse 16, really difficult scripture kind of the scripture that you avoid preaching about or talking about at all costs because uh, it doesn't sit well with us, so I just want to prepare your heart for this. But not before I have you read this verse one more time. Um, verse 13, And now because you have done all these things, declares the Lord, and when I spoke to you persistently, you did not listen. When I called you, you did not answer. Keep that in mind before we go to verse 16. Let's go there. As for you, God is now talking to Jeremiah. As for you, Jeremiah, do not pray for this people or lift up a cry or a prayer for them and do not intercede with me for I will not hear you. Do you not see what they're doing in the cities of Judah and in the streets of Jerusalem? The children gather wood, the fathers kindle fire, and the women knead dough to make cakes for the queen of heaven. And they pour out drink offerings to other gods to provoke me to anger. Is it I whom they provoke, declares the Lord? Is it not themselves to their own shame? Therefore, thus says the Lord God, Behold, my anger 
and my wrath will be poured out on this place upon man and beast, upon the trees, on the fields and the fruit of the ground. It will burn and not be quenched. That first verse in that section, verse 16, is, is incredibly uncomfortable to read. It goes against mainstream Christianity, against most things I ever you know, learned about the Bible growing up, when God tells Jeremiah not to pray for these people. That doesn't sit well at all with us. That's incredibly difficult scripture. Don't pray for them. Like, don't pray for them anymore. And one of the things that I think this teaches us about God is that if we, if we just lifted this out of context, it would be almost impossible to teach on. Oh, how should we pray or not pray for people? Let's read Jeremiah 7.16 without knowing anything that happened leading up to it or after it. You've got to read it within its context. God has been very patient with these people. For hundreds of years, as we read in verse 13, he has been sending prophets he has been pleading with them persistently. You'll still see evidence of him pleading with them within this very book itself, even after it's kind of too late. He still pleads with them to turn and amend their ways. But he tells Jeremiah, it, it's, it's, it's done, okay? The judgment has come. Um, prayers, that they've served their time and place, but God has his action that he's going to, uh, he's going to enact now. And so... He tells them, you know, the time for that is over. God is incredibly patient, but he will not be patient with sin forever, all right? Whether that's for a nation over the span of hundreds of years or with us over the decades that he gives us, it's all time given to us as a gift to respond to him. And if we treat that gift as garbage or we just say, no, get around to it, then we just make light of it. I, we're not using what he's given us. The Israelites did not use the time that God had given them and pleaded with them and sent them the prophets to change as a nation. And so that's, that's the context of that verse. Don't pray for these people. And I just wanted you to consider that for a while because that is very difficult to read. Um, other things, areas that Judah has crossed the line. This is where it starts to get really serious. This is some of the biggest accusations that we'll see in chapter 7. Look at what happened here in verse 18. The children gather wood, the fathers kindle fire, and the women knead dough to make cakes for the queen of heaven. Uh, the queen of heaven is like Ishtar is the name. Uh, very, it's, it's the Babylonian and Assyrian god. Uh, who's like the wife of Baal or possibly Molech. There's, there's a lot of uh, unknowns uh, or on the exact details of these gods anymore, but it's, it's very likely that this was also Asherah, who we'll see the Israelites being accused of worshiping over and over and over again throughout the King series. So within the context here, it, it does make sense that this could be Asherah. But the worship of that god had become a family activity. Like, everyone was involved in it. Look at they, the kids. The kids are involved. They're gathering wood so dad can make a fire and mom can make cake to the queen of heaven. I mean, y'all played patty cake? Because we're never meant to be the center of our relationship with God. I mean, God wants a relationship with us for the sake of having a relationship with us. And sacrifices served a time and place in that process. But they were never meant to be the centerpiece. These people have made sacrifice and worship at the temple their security. 
and lived a very different life outside of it. And Jeremiah is calling them out on that distinction. Let's keep looking here. Um, verse 24, they did not obey or incline their ear, but walked in their own counsels of the stubbornness of their evil hearts and went backwards, not forwards. From the day that your fathers came out of the land of Egypt to this day, I have persistently sent all my servants, the prophets, to them day after day. Yet they did not listen to me or incline their ear, but stiffened their necks. They did worse than their fathers. One of the biggest things I want to highlight in verses 24 through 26 is that phrase. Um, they walked in their own counsel, in the stubbornness of their own hearts. And so... Is, is that not the mantra of this day or, or most entertainment that we come across? Young people, how often do you see in, in your entertainment or your movies or Disney Plus, I mean, how much is follow your heart the center of our entertainment today? All right, it's, it's a very popular message. And, and I can't blame um, people for, you know, going that way and, and saying, hey, this is a great thing. Uh, we're, we're in this world where the things are falling apart. There's all sorts, there's destruction and, and sadness everywhere we look. So just find that thing that sparks joy and pursue that. That's what entertainment is providing to our kids because they want, they want uh, yeah. Uh, if I'm giving them the benefit of the doubt, they want kids to you know, find happiness or fulfillment in something. And this is such misguided advice, but this is not a new problem. They've been struggling, humankind, I think, has been struggling with this as long as humankind has been around. Following our own heart does not get us to a good place. I asked um, if you got the memory verse and what makes me happy in how smart I am, okay? Or my athletic achievements. Or these are just people that we look up to, people that, you know, have these great TED Talks and these... Uh, these YouTube channels, and they just say a lot of smart things, and that's great how God has blessed them, and these athletes, and that's awesome how God has blessed them, and that these uh, very rich people, and that's something that you know, pretty much anyone can identify with. Like, I'm going to find fulfillment in that. Give me some of what they got. And God says, this is a fruitless pursuit to find our identity, to find our fulfillment, to find any reason to boast in these things does not fill you. That's what the Israelites have been doing. They, they've been following their heart and getting nowhere with it. And God gives them the key to fulfillment, to happiness. He says, in this you can boast, in that you know me, in that you practice relationship and fellowship with me, and you know my will, that I practice justice and demonstrate love. And in these things I delight. Thank you for going to chapter 9 with me just for a moment there. It's, it's one of the biggest things I can think to connect to this message of what, what do we do when we're told to follow our heart? Because that's such an attractive phrase and such an attractive saying. And I think it's good to know that our heart does not lead us to things that really fulfill us. Only the God who created us and knows us can bring us to that place. And only by knowing him can we experience that and find the, find the path to that? All right, so thanks for looking at that with me. Let's read on. Verse 27, so you shall speak all these words to them, but they will not listen to you. You shall call them, but they will not answer you. And you shall say to them, this is the nation that did not obey the voice of the Lord, their God. 
and did not accept discipline, truth has perished. It is cut off from their lips. Cut off your hair and cast it away. Raise a lamentation on the bare heights. For the Lord has rejected and forsaken the generation of his wrath. So God's offering Jeremiah some, uh, some encouragement here in the middle of this message. Look at verse 27 again. So you shall speak all these words to them, but they will not listen to you. You shall call to them, but they will not answer you. Is that not the parenting verse of the Bible? All right, Jeremiah is going to face the same issue here. Hey, you're going to do all this. You're going to do my will. You're going to speak my words. And just so you know, they're not going to listen to you. Awesome. Thank you. Very happy to hear that. Uh, there is there's a phrase in here that I think is just it's too good. Truth has perished. These people are not accepting God's words. They're not finding fulfillment. They're not pursuing knowing the God that they're sacrificing to. And truth has perished. There have been a lot of battles for what truth is. A lot of differing opinions, a lot of ideas. Uh, we want to know what's truth. You know, in, in truth, if you, if you study truth or you think about truth for about five minutes, you kind of get the idea that, like, okay, there's, there's probably truth is going to be true in and of itself, um, whether we like it or not. But the, the more popular opinion of truth today that we find ourselves in is this all and none. Not all or none, but all and none. All truth is true. And, um, you know, it's, it's I don't have to um, abide by anyone else's truth. It's, it's this postmodern mindset that what's true for me is true for me, and what's true for you is true for you. And at the end of the day, shrug our shoulders, we just, there is no truth because we can't really point to it or find it objectively. This is the definition, and this is the most popular opinion of truth today that we battle with. And it's easy to make fun of, all right? Most pastors at this point would just kind of make a joke about um, postmodernism and say, you know, ah, people say that the only absolute is that there's no absolutes and, and you know, joke about it and say, are you absolutely sure about that? You know, um, the absolute, the only absolute is that there's no absolutes. And intellectually, it's very unsatisfying. It's very easy to make fun of. But why is it so popular? Why is this such an attractive idea that the only truth is that there's really no truth, so I'm just going to abide by my own truth? And I think one of the reasons that this is an attractive idea today, and one of the things that I'm more sympathetic towards, are people that have grown up and see what the Israelites were seeing here, is this crazy inconsistency between those that say, oh yeah, we got the truth. We know that, you know, Yahweh was a God that brought us out of Egypt and we're going to sacrifice to him, but it's, we're going to live this crazy different life outside the temple. And, you know, too many Christian neighbors demonstrate that today. It's like when, when people look, grow up and see that there are these folks that claim like, hey, we've got the truth, but it doesn't seem to do anything to affect their lives outside of the place that they go to worship God, that can be really difficult. There is this desire for genuineness, for consistency, by, I'd say that's a really natural desire, not just today. Um, my son today gave me a great illustration. Um, he walked in, he saw me getting ready, and he, he said, Dad, what are, you, what are you doing? And I was like, oh, well, I'm 
I'm going to go to church. I'm, I'm going to go, you know, talk about Jesus. And he's like, mm, Dad, they're not going to know who you are. And I was like, what are, you, what, are you <laughs> what are you talking about, Enoch? He says, if you go dressed like that, they're not going to know who you are. <laughs> and I'm like, yeah, <laughs> you're right. I, I don't dress like this. I mean, my son is just like, you, you, if you're going to go somewhere, you've got to look like how you look. You know, there's, and that's just a, a cute, innocent example. Um, but, you know, even my son this morning, he's desiring to see a consistency. Am I outside of church? Who I am inside of church? And when, when we, when anyone puts off this, this persona that they know truth, but they don't live by it, that can be very unattractive. And so even though postmodernism is not intellectually satisfying, it does give kids and it does give adults and anyone the grounds to say, hey, at least I'm being genuine. At least I'm being consistent. At least I'm being true to myself. And you have the freedom to do the same. All right? We're just being true to ourselves. And, man, I, I love apologetics uh, a lot, okay? I love studying the defense of the faith and understanding the, the reasoning and the why and why do we put our faith in this stuff. And, and you know, I get all excited about that. Um, but I'd say I'm the exception. Most people aren't going to come to God based on an intellectual debate or discussion or research about why we can, you know, have faith in the Word of God. Some people do, all right? That's, that's a value to me, but most people are going to recognize or come to Jesus because of a relationship, because of a genuineness, because of like, whoa, that person is different. What is going on when they say that they've been changed? when they go to church, when they, when they um, have this, uh, oh, sorry, just something that's different about them. When there's a genuineness, when there's a connection between who they look like in church and what they do outside of it, that speaks to most people a lot more than the intellectual side, all right? Uh, to my chagrin, um, it seems to be that way, but I just wanted to... Uh, draw your attention to that. And please, if I'm, if I'm making a um, point here that seems out of context with verse 28, uh, I'd say that's a fair assessment, but not to the overall context of this chapter. Maybe when he's talking about truth perishing here, maybe he's not talking about postmodernism, uh, but I do believe he is drawing their attention to consistency and congruency to their worship in and out of the temple over and over again. Uh, let's get to the last section here, kind of the climax of this chapter at least. Verse 30. For the sons of Judah have done evil in my sight, declares the Lord. They have set their detestable things in the house that is called by my name to defile it. They have built the high places of Topheth, which is the valley of the son of Hinnom. To burn their sons and daughters in the fire, which I did not command, nor did it come into my mind. Therefore, behold, the days are coming, declares the Lord, when it will no longer be called Topheth, or the valley of the son of Hinnom, but the valley of slaughter. For they will bury in Topheth, because there is no room elsewhere. And the dead bodies of the people will be food for the birds of the air and for the beasts of the earth, and none will frighten them away. 
and I will silence in the cities of Judah and in the streets of Jerusalem the voice of mirth and the voice of gladness, the voice of the bridegroom and the voice of the bride, for the land shall become a waste. Great way to end this chapter, end this sermon. Um, but what's he talking about here? First off, uh, verse 30, first verse of this section, they have set up detestable things in the house that is called by my name to defile it. What's going on there? Um, what this is most likely referring to is like idol worship in a side room of the temple. And, and sure, maybe we don't have like a direct picture of that or an application of that in most churches, any church I hope. I'd hope you'd never go to a church and find like a, a shrine off in a separate room or like, you know, adult content being sold in a room of a church. Like that's just a ludicrous idea. We, we wouldn't see that. But we live in a very different age. We live in this different uh, relationship with God where it's like he has given us the gift of his spirit and has now called the temple uh, us. Like we are the temple. And so, sure, this is maybe odd and easily avoidable. Don't set up idol worship within the temple. But how much do we have to look at our own life and say, all right, all right, if I'm the temple of the Lord, what sort of things, what sort of rooms do I carve out in my mind as sort of the separate place I'm going to go to to find satisfaction or fulfillment apart from God? If we are the temple of the Lord, I, I think this is a very applicable challenge or thing to... Um, to weigh against. Verse 31 and on is one of the most difficult pieces of this chapter. They've built high places of Topheth, the valley of the son of Hinnom, and um, they, they've committed child sacrifice there. And there's been scholarly debate on just how common was that, just how much was that practiced. You know, some say a lot, some say a little. The context that the Bible gives for this is way before this. When Moses and the Israelites are at Mount Sinai, it was a practice that was um, among the nations that the Israelites were going to be moving into because God warns them about it. He says, this is something that you are never to do. You do not sacrifice you know, people to my name. And then later, if you remember our study of the kings, there are two kings Ahaz and Manasseh, they're kings that were pretty recent uh, before the time of Jeremiah. They both practiced this. And if your leaders of a nation are practicing it, unfortunately, it leads me to be a little more inclined that it was more common. That this is something that they just, you got the temple over here and you've got your worship and what that looks like over here. And then just in the valley over there, they're practicing something so crazy different. I mean, God even makes this total separation from it. It's like, I had not command that, nor did that even come into my mind. This is so far from how you worship or how you act as my people. And again, just like making the cakes to Asherah or Ishtar or the queen of heaven, as mentioned earlier, the sin that these people were committing and how it affected children seem to be this like, all right, we've been patient up to this point, but now we have crossed the line. And I've, de I've de often heard of, you know, people preach on this and that specific practice and say, oh, you know, yes, we don't see that anymore, um, but go and look out 
and we've got um, we've got that. There is the practice of abortion. I mean, sh yes, there is still the uh, the killing of innocent life on the altar of of, of convenience or or shame or fear, and that's definitely an applicable concept here. But what I think would challenge us a lot more personally as we leave here today is to consider how does our worship affect the children that, that are born and that are going home in the car with us today? How does our consistency and, and what they see us doing at church, how does that line up? What sort of picture does that paint to them of the God that I worship when they go home and see us act however we act at home? I mean, this is tough stuff. I've, I've got summer staff that that still try to process, like, oh my goodness, this is who my dad was, and I saw him, like, in tears and on his knees, worshiping at home, but then we went home, and, like, I was afraid of what he was going to do next. How our worship affects our children goes so far beyond. Uh, the applications are, are much greater than what we're just reading here. This is a pretty scary place to end um, and to stop reading, but... I want to draw your attention to, uh, to John chapter 4. While you're heading there, I want you to consider a couple things. So the questions, the questions that I asked at the beginning of this, how do we read these passages of Jeremiah? How do we read these messages of judgment? And how does that apply to us? What does it teach us about God? Well, a couple things that I hope are clear in going through chapter 7 is, like, God does take sin seriously. But I also hope that we understand that, like, yes, God is patient, but not patient forever. Um, this was Paul Washer. He just gave such a good—if you don't know who Paul Washer is, I'm, I'm sorry. You're going to have to look him up on your own time, but— he gave a really good picture of this that, that I often go back to. It's like with one hand, God is holding back his wrath, and with the other hand, he's inviting sinners to be in a saving relationship with him. And this is going on for a long time, sometimes hundreds of years with a nation or decades with us. But one day, both of those hands will drop, both the hand that is holding back his wrath and the hand that is inviting sinners to be in a relationship with him. There will come a time where God demonstrates justice. And it's, it's a scary thing for us to think of. Oh, we, we almost missed it. Um, when Jeremiah was talking about the valley of the son of Hinnom, where they were doing these detestable practices, he said that this is going to be a place of slaughter, that this is going to be um, a place that burns. And that, that prophecy was bo both fulfilled. Uh, Literally, and in a spiritual sense as well, that valley would become just a burning trash heap. That is all that valley was good for um, after this time. And when the Babylonians did come in eventually, and God did use them to demonstrate uh, his justice on Judah, um, this valley was filled. You know, and, and as Jeremiah um, described it, filled with, with bodies, with rubbish. Um, it was going to be a burning trash heap for hundreds of years after this. And when Jesus comes on the scene and teaches about hell, this is the place he refers to as like a physical demonstration of God's justice and wrath. 
So it's, it's an uncomfortable topic. It's a scary topic. Um, but it is one that we see like this is part of God's character. He cares about justice. He's not going to let injustice go on forever. That can be frightening if we are living against God's will, if we're living in rebellion to him. And it can be a comfort if we're living in relationship with him, knowing that like evil is not going to persist forever. Y'all are in John chapter 4? All right. John chapter 4, there's this really cool conversation between Jesus and the Sumerian woman. And they have this discussion about Jesus being this fountain of uh, everlasting life. And that's a really cool discussion. But following that, they get into a little bit of a spat or an argument about a true place of worship. She says, oh, you know, my ancestors, they worship on this hill, but you Jews, you say you, it's got to be at the temple. And if you go to uh, verse, bear with me for a second, verse 21, right after, arguing, uh, right after they're arguing about where are they to worship, Jesus said to her, woman, believe me, the hour is coming when neither on this mountain nor in Jerusalem will you worship the Father. You worship what you don't know. We worship what we know, for salvation is from the Jews. But the hour is coming and is now here when true worshipers will worship the Father in spirit and truth. For the Father is seeking such people to worship him. And that's one of the biggest things I want to draw your attention to is back to this idea of consistency in worship. I had the chance to talk to high school campers just a little bit ago, and they were asked that question, like, what, is, what does it look like for you to worship God? And so many of them are just stuck in this idea of like, well, that's what I get to do at church. And I said, I, I really want to challenge you guys to be thinking about your worship, just as Brian prayed, like, may our worship extend beyond Sunday. What does it look like for us to be worshiping every other hour, every other day? Um, when I interviewed here out at Twin Lakes, I had the privilege of getting to know a man named Dan Fullerton. He was the pastor of the Pomeroy Covenant Church. Um, and as of a couple years ago, uh, passed away of a heart attack. But I was just so grateful to get to know him and his heart for the Lord. This was my first experience coming down here and interviewing. And I'm at a board meeting. You know, a board meeting of all places. You know, bored and boring phonetically are close for a very good reason. Okay, a board meeting of all things, and Dan Fullerton, he was the head of the board at that point, and he opens it up, and he says, ladies and gentlemen, I just want to remind you that this meeting today, this is our act of worship today. Something as boring as a board meeting. But to be able to go into something as boring as a board meeting and say, hey, these people are acting like who they appear to be when they're worshiping God, there, there is a consistency there. It's not like my worship is for here, but, you know, I'm going to put on my business hat and, you know, my morals change when I go into a board meeting. That shows an inconsistency, an incongruency. Um, I don't know. There's, there's all sorts of things you could consider this. Uh, w when I go home, when I go home and how I walk in the door and greet my family and, and, and greet my kids, like that is an act of worship. Do I demonstrate to my kids that I'm the same right now when I'm coming home as I do when they see me worshiping God? Um, when our farm equipment breaks down uh, or goes up in flames, 
um, when, uh, <laughs> when we're on vacation. And, and I'm going to end on this. You can take everything that's been said today two very, very different ways. You can be drudged in guilt and just say, ugh, this is a do-better message. And if we are relying on our own power to change how we act and make sure that how I act every moment of every day looks like what I look like in church, then it's going to be a drudgery. It's going to be like, oh, my goodness, eyes are always on me. Um, that's if we are trying to go about this on our own power. But I want you to remember, like, we are the temple of the Holy Spirit, and he is a helper in these things. And so I don't want to draw your attention so much to, uh, you know, oh, convict you of your sin. That's, that's his job, and that's um, something for us to respond to when the Spirit convicts us of a specific area. But the only thing I really want to challenge you is to try to find those mundane areas that we would never consider worship. What does it look like to add joy to that? What does it look like to consider, I am a Christ follower during a board meeting. I am a Christ follower while I'm driving home. I am a Christ follower on the drive to church. That's, that's, that's a pretty difficult one. Um, and so that's probably the biggest challenge I could leave you with. It's like, what does it look like to worship in all of those other areas? Um, that's what I encourage you guys to be talking with as a family or considering. Um, as you continue to read Jeremiah, don't miss the themes. Don't miss what God is challenging them on and asking yourself, how does this apply to me today? What sort of concerns does God have for his people that I could be looking at in my own life? and be encouraged to, to focus on or to redirect or reconsider. And so that's, um, that was pretty fun for me to do with chapter 7. Again, that was just the first chapter and a much longer message. I encourage you to go back and maybe uh, reread that one. But as we continue to read these messages of judgment, don't miss the gold in here. Uh, there's a lot of cool stuff. Let's pray, and we'll welcome up. Uh, I think communion is what we got next. Lord, thank you. Um, thank you for your challenges. Uh, thank you for your word. Um, I ask that you'd prepare this people, prepare all of us as we leave here to, uh, oh, to be considering how you would call us to be worshiping you. Uh, Lord, bring to my mind as, as I go home, as I encounter frustrating situations, as I encounter rest as, in all of these, that, that my kids, that my family, that my neighbors would see me um, as someone who is changed by you, not by my power, but Lord, that I am someone who knows you. And God, I thank you for the encouragement that that brings to me. I thank you for the hope that I've been given um, just by being saved by you. And so Lord, um, again, um, convict us of this, encourage us of this as we go out. Uh, we're yours, Lord. We love you and thank you.